Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where leading authors, leviathans in fact, share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'm delighted to be joined by a historical novelist whose fifth book, Charlotte Grey, was made into a feature film starring Kate Blanchett. Now this year, his best-selling novel, Birdsong, reaches its 25th anniversary and it returns with a new novel, Paris Echo. It's Sebastian Folks. Sebastian, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good to see you. And as is traditional here on the Penguin podcast, Sebastian has kindly brought along a number of objects that have inspired his writing, which include a first edition of Proust's Swan's Way and a picture of Hector. And we'll find out about Hector later on. But you didn't bring a catheter with you. I didn't bring a catheter, no. Was that a mistake? That was a mistake because I read a list of things that you used to put you off from writing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I thought it was because you were going to be taking the... uh, 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 I I thought that was a really good list, the things that you do to to stop yourself from writing. It's quite an extensive Mm -hmm. list. I get a lot of uh, magazine questions, people saying, tell us about your working day and so on and so forth. Of course, your working day is completely different uh, according to whether you're writing a book or thinking about a book. So um, I did recall how once when I first started writing I found it so difficult to concentrate that I would uh, draw the curtains just focus a tight light on the on the desk and it was a typewriter in those days and I'd make a thermos of tea so that I didn't have the excuse to get up and I'd almost manacle myself to the desk and I did playfully say I did toy with the idea of inserting a catheter to remove even that excuse for getting up from the desk <laughs> and I thought I thought I am no way going to avoid bringing that word in to the uh, Penguin Podcast. I'm glad you thought you could bring it up so early. Yeah, I know. I just thought, well, let's get it out of the way, first of all, Sebastian, uh, and get into your first object. It's a map. It's a map, or rather it's a book of maps. It's a a little little book of maps. A little book of maps. It's called Paris Pratique, Paris Pratique, par arrondissement. So it's a little pocket guide to Paris. Well, I suppose I rather like maps as one thing. Uh, Secondly, I rather like Paris. And this is a rather well-designed little book. And I used it a lot when I was there a couple of years ago researching my new book, Paris Echo. And it's got various scribbles in it and notes when I'd forgotten to bring a notebook with me. And I will keep this because uh, it saw me through an intense period of work. Three months in total. Yeah, well, two months to start with, then I came back, and then I went back again for a month afterwards. And it doesn't sound like a very long time, but actually, if you're living on your own in a city where you don't know anyone, it can be quite long. You know, there's no one to have dinner with, so, you know, the evening stretches for a long time, which is great. What I wanted, I could read, uh, and I just did an enormous amount of walking as well. Uh, Wore out a lot of shoes and wore out both my knees, actually, too. Did you take the notes of the kind of stories you wanted to write to Paris with you, or do the locations inspire what you want the scenarios to be? Um, It was very much the latter. I knew there was something in Paris. It was a very vague sense, a sort of intuition, that if I went to Paris and buried myself in the city, I would find something I wanted, something really substantial to write about. I've never found Paris that easy to get on with. It's a very beautiful city, obviously, much more so, I think, than London. But the people are quite um, private, quite hard to get to know. 
Uh, it's a city that runs on a lot of sort of rituals and routines, and people do the same things every day. And I think if you're not a Parisian and you're just coming from the outside, I've always found it rather hard to sort of get a grip on it and get inside it. But I think coming for slightly against the tide, as it were, w was a good thing for me because I wasn't all dewy-eyed. I, I really initially decided there'd be no street anyone would have heard of. They're all going to be so out of the way. But I, I relented a little bit. But certainly it's not set in touristic areas at all. No. And, of course, you lived in Paris, didn't you, in the early 70s? I spent time there as a student, yes, when I was about 17. I had a, another lonely three months tramping the streets then. But, of course, the difference between what you see age 17 and what you see when you're considerably older is, well, you know, you know a bit more. <laughs> that helps. But what about reminding you of your youth? I mean, talking about memory mm. and place is very important to you. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I was aware this time as I was walking around that part of my brain was trying to fix on what this novel was about. And then I began to see what it was about, which is the question of how much knowledge and education and information somebody really needs in order to live a valuable and worthwhile life. The map was a visual reference to planning the novel. So then where do you start? I mean, there's the central parts of Paris. There's the road names that are familiar to Tarek, one of the central characters of the book. Yes. I decided quite early on that one of my characters was going to come from North Africa and would be was going to be young. He would represent as it were, the clean slate, the ignorance. So he's a young lad and he hasn't read much. He's not a very devoted student. He's never been to a big capital city before. He lives in Tangiers. He's never seen an underground railway, so the metro is a source of enormous excitement to him. So he gets a job in Saint-Denis, which is a little suburb, well, quite a big suburb, actually. It was formerly a town in its own right. And he gets a job in a fast food restaurant. But the other main character, Hannah, who is an American academic historian who is the, in Paris to do a historical investigation into the lives of French Parisian women under the German occupation, 1940 to 44. She lives in the 13th arrondissement, which again is, is not a place that tourists go to very often. It has rather brutal 1960s architecture. It also has a lot of Chinese and Vietnamese shops, restaurants, supermarkets, and so on. But within this rather bleak, extended Chinatown, there's a little area called Buto Kai, which means literally translated Quail Hill, I suppose. It's a grid of only about half a dozen, ten streets, but it's a rather cute little area within. And she fetches up Lucky Her in a, in a flat there. Is there a connection between Tarek's lack of knowledge about the colonial impact that France had on his homeland and France's inability to come to terms with what that meant for the French? Yes. I mean, that's a, a, a complicated question, which I'll try to answer very, in very, very simple terms. I mean, Tarek hasn't really chosen to investigate his own history. I mean, as many people don't. And his own background is slightly complex insofar that his mother is half French and half Algerian and his father is Moroccan. And he is not a Muslim. He, his mother was Catholic but not particularly believing. His father is an atheist. So he doesn't have that um, religious background. 
he's just a boy and he's interested in television, girls, the possibility of alcohol, smoking weed and so on. He's forced to find out things that he didn't really care about. And he becomes interested in his mother and he becomes interested in his grandparents, her Algerian side. And he wonders if they were not caught up in some really unpleasant things which happened in Paris in the early 60s. An event which is just touched on quite lightly in the book when Maurice Papon, who was the uh, prefect of police in Paris, rounded up basically all the Algerians they could find in Paris and took them to various police stations, beat them up, tied their hands and threw them into the Seine. And hundreds, maybe thousands of people were killed in this way. And it's still something that's little talked about. It is talked about, oddly enough, in a film called Caché or Hidden, uh, by, made by uh, Michael Haneke, um, a very good film, actually. But it's, it's a very mysterious film. You're not quite sure what's happened, but that is the background of that film as well. So I'm certainly not the first person to have, have touched on this. Um, so, yes, uh, the book is quite a lot about trying to deal with the past and how you deal with the past and how best you do commemorate and remember things. And there's also the question of um, the French complicity in the Holocaust. In the, uh, They helped the um, German occupier to put uh, almost 80,000 Jews onto trains going out of Paris to Auschwitz. Um, some refugees, but many French nationals as well. And this was simply denied for many years after the war by um, the French authorities who just wanted to forget all this. And you can quite understand why. Um, these were terrible wounds that, if they were dwelt on at that time, probably would have caused a, a civil war of some kind because half, Fran half France really wanted the Germans to win and the other half came round to the Allied point of view. Um, one of the themes in Paris, Echo, is how the past and the present collide. Mm. Now, there's a point in the book where Hannah visits an old stables for research and she is overwhelmed by the smell of horses, uh, even though, of course, there are no animals to be seen. Now, afterwards, she tries to make a sense of what just happened. And let's hear that extract now. I had sensed a presence of animals that weren't there. Smelling was not quite as bad as seeing or hearing, which would have been delusional or psychotic. But even so, could there be such a thing as temporal synesthesia, a condition in which you confused not two senses like sight and smell, but in which different eras became merged? Could it be that my brain, made hyperactive by the shortcomings of the present, had actually experienced, through smell, the richer past? And if so, I thought, pushing my hand up through the front of my hair, did that mean I was going insane? That was Paris Echo, written by my guest Sebastian Folks, and read by Deborah McBride. When you were at school and you studied history... Did you try and imagine the people? Because history is taught in a very unemotional way. Mm. In many ways, it's facts, it's figures, it's heroes. This happened, yeah. that didn't happen. But here this empathy overwhelms her. Yes, I mean, my study of history at school was exactly as you described, but it, it stopped when I was about 13. I didn't do history. I did a combination of subjects after that that precluded history. And yet history fascinates you. Yeah, I came, I came to history via literature, really. I was trying to set books back in a previous time. The second novel I published, The Girl at the Lyon d'Or, I wrote in the 80s, but I wanted it to be set at a time when some of the moral dilemmas it looked at would, I felt, have been more acute. So I 
picked the 1930s. I didn't want to go into the war years, obviously. And then I thought, well, I better find out what life was like in um, France in the 1930s. So I read some big background histories, and then I read smaller social histories, and I read journalism of the time and books about um, the, the theatre and music and films, particularly at the time, to get a sort of sense of daily life. And then because the, the main character of the story was in her early 20s, it figured arithmetically she must have been born during the First World War. So then I thought, hmm, OK, so what was France's experience of the First World War like? Well, I'm, I'm still finding out, sort of 35 years on, I'm still... It's just an enormously fascinating subject. And I think that was the sort of beginning of my interest in sort of this empathetic way of looking at history. How difficult is it to construct feelings of a time where, for instance, there's no political correctness or mm. there's none of the social mores of the 21st century? Apart from the background and then the, the, then the feeling of the social time and then your imagination and then, of course, you have an individual character and your individual character will give you something. If you've managed to create a living man or woman in your book, that character will tell you they want to go to the cinema twice a week and then you think, mm, is that possible? Yeah, OK, fine, go to the cinema twice a week. <laughs> so they come and help you. Is that the part you most enjoy? Yes. The bits I like most are one when I've got... I can see how the themes are all going to lock together and then I love it when the characters begin to give me something and I can sit back. It's like being a parent. You say, you know, when at last finally one of your children makes you a cup of tea, you know, it's a big moment and says, Daddy, would you like? And you think, oh, thank you. Know, all this effort I've put in and now you're coming to help me. But I, but I just love the sentences, really. That's what I love best, Each the choice of each word. That's the most important thing to me. Good, because we have a handwritten letter next up by uh, William Wordsworth. This is your second object for us. Why this, Sebastian? This letter, which is in pen on a rather... Uh, it's making a bit of a noise because it's, it's in a frame, a metal-rimmed glass it would frame. Be, yeah. uh, this, my wife found this in a sale catalogue uh, and bought it for me and gave it to me as a present. It's an inconsequential letter... But it is by William Wordsworth, who is a great hero of mine and one of the great poets in English. And actually to have in your hand something that he wrote is just incredibly thrilling. I don't know if you'd like me to read out to you what it says. It's not, yes. It's, I wish it was, dear Coleridge, tomorrow we, we shall publish the lyrical ballads and change the course of English poetry. But actually it's a note written from a, an inn... It's headed Lion in Crofts, Tuesday. My dear sir, I am here, and I should be happy to call and sit an hour with you this evening, if I could be admitted in Traveller's Déshabille. I travel on horseback southwards. I mean to start before breakfast tomorrow. Ever faithfully yours, William Wordsworth. It's essentially a text message. Yes, it's, it's a text message of its day. <laughs> of its um, day, yeah. We don't know who it was sent to, and maybe a fan, a reader, um, I don't know. Where but do you I, keep that? It hangs uh, on the shelf in, uh, with, with the books in the, and, the, you know, with the television in the sitting room. Um, but I love what I love. It starts, my dear sir, I am here. And this is rather, well, he was there. He's here when he wrote it, and he's, he, in a way, he's still there. And this is what, you know, one of the things that interests me about 
you know, the perpetual return of people and people being, in a way I find quite hard to explain, but sort of reincarnations or variations of one another. So I look at it often, I am here, and there he is. Put it down there. You're on a ravenous search to find out about people because you said I don't know how you can understand other people or yourself if you haven't read a lot of books. And you've read a lot of books and yet you still haven't... I guess what, I haven't cracked it, no. Um, <laughs> I, I do find... I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Tony Quinn, the other day, who's a writer also, and we were talking about how much we had learned about the inner workings of other people from reading fiction. And I said, you know... I didn't realise until I first read proper fiction when I was about 14 or 15 that other people had an inner life. I thought they were all just sort of cardboard cutouts and I was the only person who felt fear and trembling and anger and so on. Almost everything I understand about other people at that age was based on my reading of Jane Austen and D.H. Lawrence and Dickens and so on. I said, I, even today, I think maybe 75% of when I hear a friend talk and I'm trying to empathise and sympathise, mostly I'm comparing her to Anne Elliot or Lizzie Bennet or someone in my mind. And Tony Quinn said, only 75, I think 90% really, don't you? <laughs> uh, and yet people, obviously, who don't read many books, they, they can be sympathetic and understanding and they have a working knowledge of other people, but I don't really know how they acquired it. This sense of uh, educating yourself is another of key themes, actually, in uh, Paris Echo. Now, Tarek realises he knows so little and he begins to struggle... With that, now there's a moment in the book, in fact, when he first starts to notice his ignorance when speaking to Hannah. And let's hear that clip now. These metro stations, eh? What names? Barbez, Rushishua. What a mouthful. Or is that the famous thing I should have heard of too? It's just a junction of two streets with those names, said Sandrine. Barbez was a revolutionary from Guadeloupe, said Hannah. And Rushuart was an abbess the head of a convent. How on earth do you know that? I was truly knocked back. I'm a historian, like you say, she smiled. And ten years ago I lived here for a year. I was lonely. I had time to look into things. She was less scornful, a bit gentler than Sandrine. And did this nun sail out and preach to this revolutionary? Not in person. I think Barbes lived in Paris anyway. So, I said, when you're on the metro, you don't just think, this is where I get off, nice cafe or whatever, and I'll be seeing my boyfriend any moment. You think about revolution and an old woman praying in a convent. I guess so. I'm afraid it's too late to change now. Isn't it a bit tiring? She laughed. Yes. But it's what gives depth to the day. It's the silver behind the glass. Otherwise, life would be like being permanently on the internet. Just one dimensional. Click. Open, shut, click. That was Paris Echo, written by my guest, Sebastian Folks, read there by Elam Essas. Does writing about war and writing about the terrible things humans are able to do to each other and do do to each other, does it ever make you despondent at the end of the day? Well, I think it has. You know, I do feel sometimes ashamed and, and sad, but I try on at such times to think about more particularly my own family and my grandfather who fought in the First World War and my father who fought in the Second. And I think that when they were in trenches under heavy fire, their hope was that their children, i.e. me and my children, 
wouldn't have to go through all that, uh, that we would have a better life, and that's what they were fighting for. And we haven't been at war. I thought as a child I probably would die in a third world war, but it hasn't happened. And despite the terrible things which are happening in the Middle East, the actual number of people dying in warfare around the world has declined. I see no prospect of my children being involved in a war. You know, you can feel guilty about that you haven't done what your parents and grandparents did to secure the safety of the world, or you can feel grateful to them for what they did and say the only way I can, I can thank them is by being happy, and um, that's the best way of going about things. So when you write about war the people in wars, and you just talked about your own grandfather being there. What do you want me as a reader, people listen to, to feel about these people? I mean, Birdsong, for instance, about, you know, a British soldier who served in World War I and the granddaughter trying to uncover that story. One of the impulses behind writing Birdsong was definitely a sort of documentary one, really. In my researches for other books, I had become, I'd become very fascinated by the experience of the First World War. I read books like Siegfried Sassoon and Robert Graves, which are, from a literary point of view, very good books. But I felt there was something that wasn't contained in them, some essential day-to-day -day essence of experience, which I didn't find in other much less well-known writers. But I began to find when I went to the Imperial War Museum and went through first-hand documents from ordinary private soldiers. I thought perhaps people need to be reminded of, A, the day-to-day -day experience, and B, sort of philosophically to think again about what uh, that war meant and how it set the tone for the whole of the 20th century. Why do you think it was that when you suggested to your editor that you wanted to write a book about World War I, they were horrified? Um, she was horrified because no one had written a book about World War One for a long time, and it was such a seems like quite a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a repulsive subject. Yeah. Actually, Pat Barker had started to write at that time as well, but you know, rats, lice, trenches, mud, blood, khaki. Where's the colour? Where's the fun? Where's the you know? Where's the fun in all that? I think that was her initial response. But she was a good publisher, a good editor, a good friend, and she said. Once she'd rallied, she said, we'll do the best we can, and she did. What's validation for someone now, at this stage of your career, so successful, so millions of books, 14 published novels, what's validation? I have letters at home from people, from, I have a, from a young man who became a psychiatrist after reading Human Traces. I said, I changed my life, I threw away everything I was doing, I went back to med school, started again, and now, you know, that's... So things like that, of course, you know, you feel pretty validated or excited by that. After hearing things like that where you have changed the course of people's lives, you can't surely, when you sit down to write, think about the power <laughs> this potentially can have on people's no. lives, can you? Because no. it'll end up being a bit naff, really. So uh, then... You are, of course, concerned with every word that mm. goes on the page. You love, as you previously said, the sentence and the writing that sentence. Mm. But then the purpose of it, I, I, the navigator or the puppet master, mm. which one are you? I'm a bit of both, I think. 
I'm much less bossy and manipulative as a writer than I used to be. I mean, for instance, Birdsong, I wanted to tell people, this is what happened, you've got to understand this. I'm telling it how it was, you've never read this before, this is the only way it was, and this is how you're going to respond. But with Paris Echo, there's plenty of room for the reader in the book to make their own mind up about these things. It's not all about you know, preaching and ideas, although, you know, themes and ideas are very important to me. I couldn't I couldn't write a book which didn't have strong central themes because to me they're like the RSJs that hold the building together. That's what, you know, without them, you know, it all falls down. You know, they are they are stories about individuals, about men and women, boys and girls, and I want people to feel they know Tarek a bit and Hannah, and they're both very flawed characters, but they're both quite lovable in their way. Uh, and even if you don't love them, I hope you'll be interested by them at least and want to know and maybe shed a tear at the end. Let's move on to object number three, Sebastian. First edition of Prost, Swan's Way. Yes, this is um, uh, a book I bought in Paris when I was over there for the publication of a book of mine. In... When was that first published, that edition you've got there? Um that it's first published old. in uh, 1913. And it, this has been rebound, so it's got a stiff um, cover, but inside is the original paperback, and French novels were always published in paper covers. So here it is, Marcel Proust, à la recherche du temps perdu, du côté de chez Swan, Paris, Bernard Grasset, éditeur. I love the colour of it. It's gone a bit yellow, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And so you, and you turn the pages. In the corners. And, uh, you know, it's great that this book begins with the word long temps because it's going to go on for a very long time indeed. It looks well leafed through. It is. I mean, I, I've frankly no idea how valuable it is. I think it was quite expensive to buy, but I think it depends on whether the original spine is intact, which I can't see because it's been bound in. But if it is, then it's worth a bit. But... That's not why I bought it. I bought it because I was going through the second-hand bookshop and I'd bought two other books about Proust. And then the woman who owned the bookshop, she sort of gestured me over and, and said, um, are you interested in Proust? And I said, yes. She said, in that case, I have something special to show you. And she went literally underneath the counter and she brought this out. And I knew that I just had to buy it. And I, I mean, I, I can't remember how much it was. It was expensive, but not not insanely so. But I remember the speaking to the interviewer afterwards. I told him I'd just bought it. I was rather excited. He he said, how much? And I told him, he said, that's a lot of money to pay for a book you've already read. <laughs> He's rather, yeah. Six volumes to follow. Yes. Uh, I haven't got those. I've only got no. the first. You decide to have children instead. Yes, you yeah. can't, you can't have it all. No, you can't have it all. You love to touch history. Yes. I th I think that sort of tangible connections are important. I remember that's how I first got up the nerve to write Birdsong, actually. When I was on the Western Front, I'd, I'd gone on a journalistic trip in the late 80s, organised by a very fine woman called Lynn MacDonald, who had collected a lot of oral history from soldiers. And of course, at that time, there's still plenty alive. And I went uh, with them, and I was standing in um, Flanders, uh, at a battlefield called, known to the English as Orbers Ridge. And I was standing with this old man and he was describing what had happened and he, he was physically holding my hand as he described it. And it was rather wonderful because 
it suddenly stopped being history as some sort of pageant that happened to old-time guys in another world. And it was this man whose flesh and blood was in mine standing in exactly this place, in this mud. It could have been him, it could have been me. And so that was true touching. Because you've brought in a number of objects, but I can imagine now I'm closing my eyes and thinking about your house and wandering <laughs> around it and wondering how many... Pieces of history. Well, you know, the thing is that it's not just me in the house. My wife has a you know very large say in, in the way the house is, so um, it's quite normal. It's it's not like some mad it's not like a British museum. museum. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Neil McGregor hanging around in no, front room. No, it's beautiful and uh, down to her. Nothing to do with me really. I have a little geek room somewhere in it, but that's it. Let us go to another object, Sebastian, and this is a picture of Hector. Yeah. Hector is an eleven-year-old blue whippet. And he came into our lives, well, 11 years ago, I suppose, as a puppy. And he's just been a sort of complete and utter joy for the whole family. Hector is the dedicatee of Paris Echo, which um, a friend of mine thinks is a very appalling thing to do, to dedicate a book to your dog. But the trouble is, he's, not, he's never going to read it. He's really not a big reader, and uh, least of all fiction. So, Does Hector play a role in your creative process uh, in terms of... You know, does Hector come and curl up at your feet as you yeah, well, sit he, there with the spotlight on the typewriter? He did at one point have a habit of sitting in the chair in which I work um, with the laptop open in front of me, and I was wondering if he'd like to finish the chapter for me. But I suppose his role in the creative process is that he makes you feel so happy and so good um, that um, that sort of calm, that calmness he brings is, is, is possibly helpful. How many hours a day do you set to yourself to, I would say, if I was being a bit <laughs> mischievous, put off mm. writing, but I, I'll, I'll stick with the straight question. Well, I don't really do it by hours, I do it by words. You cannot write less than a thousand words, you know, if you're seriously pushing forwards in a book. And more than 2,000, there's likely to be a drop-off in the quality because your mind's getting a little bit fatigued. But I reckon... All going well, probably 1,400 words. And that might take from 10 in the morning till 8 at night. It might take from 10 in the morning till 2 in the afternoon. It just depends how it's going. And sometimes you sit down and you don't know what's coming up and you just have to write something, any old stuff, really. And then it's no good and you throw it out, but there's a germ of an idea in there and then it just gets you over that little bit and then you're into something you know what you're doing again. So, but you don't really know how it's going to work from day to day. We've talked a lot about the writers from the past. Who are the contemporary writers, Sebastian, in your reading pile? I used to read an enormous amount of contemporary writing because I worked as a journalist and reviewer. But I sort of stopped when I became a novelist myself. And I think part of me is just still trying to catch up with the syllabus I never quite finished as a, as a student at Cambridge. There's still bits of Conrad and... Um, bits of Henry James, some of the later books I have never quite got round to, and I still feel slightly ashamed about that. But Why? I don't know. I feel that I was brought up in that way. This is the canon. This is what you've got to read. Whereas now it's about how you read, and you can read anything you like, because the idea that one book is better than another, that's been thrown out of the window a long time ago. But in you know Cambridge, when I was there, uh, there was a a teacher, Don F.R. Levis, and he basically prescribed which books you could read and which books you couldn't. What's the key to relevancy? You're going back over those old books mm. and 
you're reading Conrad, who's one of my favourite authors, mm. not my favourite author, actually. Mm. Relevancy is something that is so key today because of how fast the world is moving. Mm. And in popular art and culture, it's all about being relevant. Yes, I, I, I'm, I've always had problems with that word, relevant, because it, it, it always needs another phrase, relevant to what? Mm. Um, I mean, to, to take Conrad, I read Heart of Darkness again uh, two years ago just to see what it was like. And it's, it's wonderful. And it, its relevance to today's world is it shows colonialism in the making and the utter fatuity. There's this great bit when they're sailing down the west coast of Africa before they go upriver for the main part of the story and they see a French gunboat firing from the bay into the bush and they're firing against someone who is their friend's enemy, they think, but they're really not quite sure. And the whole sort of utter moronic, mindless brutality of colonialism is in that the sort of rather feeble plop of the French gun as it fires into the bush. God. So there's a great relevance, I think, in Conrad. You see that the making of the colonial world, which has been unmade in the 20th century in very messy ways. So what's next? I mean, look, we're here and we've spoke a lot about your latest work, Paris Echo. Mm. But have the seeds of the next work begun? Yeah, there was a little clue where you'll just have to play this back. And there was, oh. I dropped a little hint halfway back. I'm far, I'm far from being ready to write uh, another novel at the moment, um, but I am going to write a play. There was a stage adaptation of Birdsong and I got, I was, appeared in it with little walk-on parts occasionally and I got very interested in the process of stage, staging, stagecraft and so on. So I'm going to write a short one-act play, no interval, 90 minutes and see where we go. It'll probably be no good at all because I haven't spent a lifetime learning the craft. But, you know, what's to lose? Three weeks, and um, that's, so that's what I'm doing next. You said you're nowhere near ready yet to embark upon mm. another novel. How do you usually know when you are? When I know that I have the RSJs, the main thematic supports, and that they are original, strong and will keep me going for two years and will keep the reader going through, you know, the 20 quid they paid for the book and the five or six hours it will take them to read. And then I have got a vague plan of action, a sort of rough route map of, of what's going to happen. And, you know, when you feel really excited, actually, when you feel really, I can't wait to get going now, I'm ready. You, you know, you just know. Sebastian Fox, thank you. Thank you very much. Good to hang out. Forever in a Day by Anthony Horowitz. 007 is dead. Killed by three bullets from an unknown hand. MI6 need a new weapon in the war against crime. A new agent. Someone uninhibited and able to take on the brutal underworld of the French Riviera. He's in Stockholm now. If all goes well, he'll be reporting back in the next 24 hours. I already have his fitness report, his medical and psychological evaluations. He's come through with flying colours and, for what it's worth... I like him, personally. Well, if he gets your recommendation, that's good enough for me, Chief of Staff. M frowned. You didn't tell me his name. It's Bond, sir, Chief of Staff replied. James Bond. This is how it all began, the story of a legendary spy. Forever and a Day is available to download now from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.